welcome to Writing the Coast, the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. I'm Megan Cole, your host. If you're new to Writing the Coast, I'm happy you found yourself listening. If you're a regular listener, thank you so much for joining me again. Writing the Coast is a podcast in celebration of the work being created by authors and illustrators in British Columbia and the Yukon. Particularly, I focus on the titles that make up the shortlist of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes. So this is the last episode of 2019. I feel like I need like noisemakers or something. Um, But here we are, the last episode. It came quickly because we started late in the year. But I feel like we've packed so much in. And I've just had such a great time doing this podcast so far. I've learned so much from these talented people I've had the privilege of speaking with, and I feel lucky that I get to spend just this little bit of time exploring their work and learning a little bit more about them. And I know that 2020 is just going to have so much more great work and wonderful people that I get to share with you on the cyber airwaves. So yay, 2019, and excited about 2020. But enough reminiscing, um, on to today's episode. So over the next 30 minutes or so, you are going to hear a conversation I had with Eve Lazarus. I was lucky enough to meet Eve in the spring when she paid a visit to Powell River. Um, She read from her book, Murder by Milkshake, which is so fantastic. If you haven't read it, you should. Um, She really makes the past come alive in the pages of her book. Eve is a very busy person. She has written seven books that include Blood, Sweat, and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance, um, who is Vancouver's first forensic investigator. We'll talk a little bit about that in the podcast. She also wrote Cold Case Vancouver. Another book of hers is At Home with History, the Secrets of Greater Vancouver's Heritage Homes, and of course, Murder by Milkshake an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. I talked to Eve on the phone, and we started our conversation with her reading from Murder by Milkshake, which was shortlisted for the 2019 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Prize. The scene that you're going to hear takes us to the top of Vancouver's iconic Bomac sign, which is now, of course, covered by a Toys R Us sign um, on West Broadway. So here's that conversation with Eve Lazarus. So this is from uh, a chapter called Guy in the Sky. When Janine went to visit her mother in the hospital, she was shocked. Esther could barely get out of bed. And when she did, she had a hard time walking. We were trying to get her up and walk her in the hallway. And she said she couldn't feel her hands or feet. She kept rubbing her fingers, said Janine. As Esther's health worsened, Rini's colleagues were surprised that he intended to go through with the station's latest promotion, The Guy in the Sky, because he'd be unable to visit his wife for the nine days that he'd be perched on top of Vancouver's landmark BOMAC sign. She isn't that sick, he told them. I begged him to scrap the promotion, said CKW sales manager Mel Cooper. I told him to spend his time with Esther. Rini said we had an obligation to the sponsor and that the show had to go on. I thought it was terribly callous, 
but most promo guys were a bit crazy. Rini's personal life was spinning out of control. Neither he nor Lolly had been able to contain the rumours of their affair at CKNW, and station manager Bill Hughes had had enough. He told their immediate supervisors to fire them both. Lolly was allowed to resign, but Rini used his wife's worsening health as an excuse and talked his way back into his job. Hughes agreed it would be unkind to drop him. As soon as Esther recovered, Hughes said, let him go. With his wife still in hospital with an unknown disease, Rini's colleagues in the promotion department were puzzled that he still intended to go ahead with a guy in the sky promotion. Rini was as always short of money, and the promotion paid a bonus over his regular salary. It had already been extensively advertised on CKW, and billboards had been placed around the car lot. Bomac hired a Pinkerton guard to stay near the bottom of the sign, not only to keep people from trying to climb up the scaffolding, but also to make sure that Rini did not come down. Jimmy Patterson had commissioned the Bomac sign in 1958 from Neon Products, a company that he later bought. It was a 20-metre-tall sign with orange and red letters that spelled BOMAC and a transformer powerful enough to illuminate a city block. And on June 4, 1965, ten days after his wife entered Vancouver General Hospital, Rini Castellani climbed to the top of the BOMAC sign. The idea was that he would live in a station wagon that was perched on top of steel scaffolding beside the sign. He vowed not to come down until every last car in the lot was sold. The station wagon was equipped with a telephone and a direct line to the station, bedding and a chemical toilet. Food was sent up to him in a bucket. The car was brightly lit up and Rennie was quite visible from the ground most of the time. He would give regular broadcasts from the tower. Passerbys were encouraged to drive by and honk their horns and they could see a clothesline strung from the station wagon to the sign, with a pair of Rennie's shorts swaying in the wind. At nights, Rennie worked mostly with DJ Jerry Davies. The two had known each other since 1944, when they worked in local theatre. Davies would phone Rennie at 12.15, 2.15 and 4.15 in the morning to do a cut-in, and sometimes he'd randomly call just to check in with a guy in the sky. At 3pm on Saturday, June 12th, the entire promotions department gathered at the bottom of the sign for Rini's coming down ceremony, which was broadcast live on CKNW. Rini's boss gave him the next two days off. Rini told him he was going to take the station's truck to pick up Janine and go visit his wife in hospital. And that's the end of that part. That's so great. Um <laughs> I, I'm kind of in, I want to ask you about the research. I mean, research probably is just so heavy in all the, the historical writing you do, but how much research did you have to do for that piece alone? Um, a ton. Um, this one, probably not so much. Um, Janine certainly gave me the background in the beginning about going to the hospital to visit a mother. She was 11. Yeah. Um, at, at that stage, and uh, so she could sort of she she remembered quite a bit of that. 
as for the, the the whole BOMAC sign, I mean, you know, I just found that really fascinating because it's such a kind of icon in Vancouver. And uh, so I, I just really enjoyed kind of researching that whole Jimmy Patterson connection. And, yeah. you know, he'd originally got the, the sign built and it's still up there. You know, now it's covered with a Toys R Us sign and all that sort of stuff. And a, a lot of the... Um, uh, information about when he was up on the sign came from various, you know, things from CKNW and and then various uh, parts of the the police investigation and, and the court transcripts. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Janine because I know you've you've kind of developed a relationship with her and she was kind of the catalyst for Murder by Milkshake too, wasn't she? She really was. Yeah. I, I, do you want me to tell you how I, I met her? Yeah, that would be great. Because it was kind of it, a couple of things just all came together, and I'd written about this murder in in my book um, at home with history. It was my first book back in 2007, but I'd just written the bare bones of the murder, uh, and it was basically filtered through the house where it had happened in in Kerrisdale. And um, then a couple of years after that, I, I'd written a story up on my blog, same sort of thing, um, just talking about the murder and and what it had happened. And um, a while later, I got this email from a woman called uh, Debbie and she said you know, and lucky for me I, I'd made a mistake on this blog I'd said that Lolly uh, and this was Rini's mistress had had a daughter six-year-old daughter and this woman Debbie Miller wrote to me and she said oh you're wrong um, Lolly had a son and it's my husband Don and um, by the way Don's been looking for Janine for nearly 50 years do you know how he could get in contact with her and I said, wow, no, but I've always wanted to meet Janine or just, you know, talk to her and, mm-hmm. and just find out what happened to her. You know, what happens to someone that kind of becomes collateral damage as a child and this horrendous murder when your father murders your mother. And um, anyway, so a couple of years went by and I had my book launch for Blood, Sweat and Fear at the Vancouver Police Museum. And um, it's a true crime exhibit. In fact, I, I'd first heard about this whole murder, this arsenic murder at the police museum back in the 90s through this true crime exhibit. And it's always sort of fascinated me. And anyway, they had the true crime exhibit. We'd had a bar set up in the autopsy suite. And uh, it, the, the whole, you know, the old morgue is still there. And um, Esther's body was actually exhumed and brought there. So we're, you know, standing around having a drink. And through all this, Janine turned up with a daughter. And so that's how I met her. You know, it was really, really surreal. And um, we sort of, because uh, book launches are crazy, and, and so we sort of talked about meeting the, the following week, and we did. We met for coffee and um, just talked for hours and hours. And I just became really fascinated in the, telling the story from her point of view, what happened, and, and also what happened afterwards, because the story tends to stop when Esther dies. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I really wanted to, to sort of explore that and explore what happens to, to all the people when an event like this sort of happens. I think that's such a different approach to true crime writing, too, that I remember when you were up here at doing your reading at the library and you talked about um, kind of giving a voice to the people who would otherwise be forgotten. And I found that really compelling because I think we often, on true, in true crime stuff, we focus on the crime and not so much the characters. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I, even with um, Cold Case Vancouver, and that was really the first true crime 
book that I did, it was really important to me and to, to tell the story of the victim and to interview the family and friends and, and just really give them a voice back. And, and that's what I find really interesting. I mean, the murder's always fascinating, let's face mm-hmm. it. That's part of the story and the reason for doing it. But what I find really interesting and what, what gets me interested is the research into that person, into the victimology of that. And, uh, and that's a compelling story to me. Yeah. Where did all this uh, interest in, in history and exploring the past come from? I, I know you've got a long history as a journalist, but you seem to have a particular interest in in the past. I just kind of fell into it, to be honest. Um, I was a business reporter by trade, and um, it just came along. A couple of things happened, um, oh, God, 15 years ago, I would guess, that kind of got me into this. Um, one of them was I, I'd found this book about, it was a biography about my aunt, Aunt Joan, and she was the first QC in, or first female Queen's Counselor in Australia. And uh, this book had come out about 1970, and um, my dad had died when I was quite young. My grandparents had died years before I was born, and I found this book with the address of the old family house, and I thought, oh, wow, this would be really interesting to have a look at the house and find out some of the history of it. And uh, anyway, so I had a couple of crazy stories from the book, and when I went down to Australia the next time, I kind of looked up this house, and it was in a town called Ballarat, and knocked on the door, and and people had lived there for 25 years and I kind of told them you know why I was there and we had this incredible afternoon where I was telling them the stories about you know the the history of the house and they were telling me (laughs) that the more up-to-date stories and one of the stories was that my grandmother uh, apparently would when one of the my father or one of the siblings or eight kids in the family would move out she would physically have the room locked off the house (laughs) And I thought, this is just bizarre. And then when I got there and saw the house, it was this old Victorian house. And they had a hallway going right through it like a spine. And then the rooms came off it, if you can imagine that. And it was quite large and rambling and sort of this country kind of way. And when I told them this, they just started laughing and said, come with us. And they had this door that they opened it and it went nowhere. And they said, (laughs) you've solved this. 25-year-old mystery that we had. We had these doors that went nowhere and we couldn't figure it out and we kept this one because it was just bizarre. Yeah. And um, I thought, wow, this is so interesting. And, and then I told them the story of my family and that I knew from the book and gave them the book and, and that gave them a sense of, sort of the history of the house. And when I came back to Vancouver, I was reading The Sun and you know the home section that they have. And there was just this article and it mentioned this by James Johnston and it talked about James being uh, a sort of a house detective and what he did was uh, people would hire him to do the history of the house and find out who lived there and what the house was used for and all this sort of stuff. And I just I was freelancing at that point. I thought, this is such a great story. And so I called James up. And I said, I'd really like to write about you, um, what you're doing. It's really interesting. And he said, oh, you know, come on over. I'll give you a tour of Strathcona. It's the area where he lived. It's, you know, you know, Strathcona. It's just kind of wedged between the downtown east side and Chinatown. And I'd never been there before. And it's just this gorgeous neighborhood of heritage houses and 
all this sort of stuff. And anyway, James took me for a walk through the neighbourhood and he'd, he'd point out this house and say, oh, that was a bootlegging place and this house was a brothel and this house had this corrupt cop and this house was, um, I don't know, a Chinese sausage factory. And every house had this story. And I, yeah. I just fell in love with this idea that a house has a history or a genealogy, you know, kind of like a person. And that if you could tell these stories, you could find a lot about history. And and to be perfectly honest, I had absolutely no interest in history before this. So, you know, I'd come to Vancouver in mid-80s and it was kind of like this, you know, town that was, you know, forestry and fisheries and streets named after old white guys and stuff. <laughs> and it just, just never did much for me. And then I found this seedy underbelly that... Yeah just made it so fascinating and you know the more you dig the more you find that especially Vancouver last century in particular was just a seething mass of corruption and so interesting and I just got really really into it and started you know wrote that first book it was more about the geography and then kind of two books came up after that and one of the chapters has always been on murders in the house and then ghost stories because yeah. it, just kind of went together and and that by the time I got to cold case Vancouver I realized that I was writing you know before that I was doing history with a bit of true crime and, and then I'd kind of flip that round and I was writing true crime but also you know wedged into history yeah because all the stories yeah telling the stories is really important in a time frame I found yeah what was I mean? The, was the learning curve different? Like going from you know it being able to interview living people to having to deal with historical records was that a challenge for you? Oh yeah, but I've always really loved research. Yeah. Um. So so that wasn't. I mean, that's what I loved to do, and that became really really fun for me, and just digging up these all the vital stats and all, all the stuff about the people but what I really loved and still do is um, finding that the relatives the descendants of these people mm -hmm. and um, and finding sort of original records wherever possible and and uh, that's what happened with Blood, Sweat and Fear. It's a story of Inspector Vance. He was the first forensic scientist in Vancouver and, and pretty much in North America. Um, we were just leading edge and no one seems to have known that. I certainly didn't. And I, I was just absolutely intrigued by this, that, um, you know, Vancouver was the, the first police department in North America that had a forensic scientist on staff. And, yeah. you know, we were just way ahead and you know, if it was in the States, we'd have a statue for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> but in Canada, it's kind of, oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. And um, But when I was researching that, uh, the police museum had a bit of information, but not very much. And I was able to track down his one of his grandchildren uh, initially and uh, and then many more. And, and one of them had told me, she, she said, well, you know, when I was helping to pack up my grandfather's stuff, in the 60s and she was you know quite young um there were all these boxes that he'd brought home from you know work with crime scene photos and you know diaries and all this stuff and i said oh my god you know this would be so fantastic to, to yeah. get 
And she said, oh, yeah, it's probably been thrown out 60 years ago, sort of think, you know, this is the early 60s. And so by this time, I'd had contact with a number of the grandchildren. I just sent around emails, just, you know, begging and just sort of saying, could everyone just check their attics and their garages <laughs> and their basements and just see if anything might have survived? Yeah. And it did. <laughs> it, they ended up turning up seven boxes in Gabriola Island in one of their um, garages. Oh, and it wow. was marked old clothes or something, right, and been there for years. And uh, it was all this stuff. It was just, you know, you can imagine, like, for a researcher, this is just like winning the lottery. Yeah. And it, it was incredible information. There were photos and crime scene photos, and there were even forensic samples. Like, I literally had the gravel and the hair from this dead woman's crime scene, you know, flowing out on my desk. It, it was just uh, insane. And he'd kept records of everything. He'd kept records, um, a diary that I, it took his writing was just horrible it took me weeks to kind of transcribe that but it was just gold and it talked about um, corruption in the Vancouver Police Department and uh, all these attacks on his life there were seven attempts on his life and you know and and to hear this in his own words uh, was just amazing and um, that became Blood, Sweat and Fear the book. Yeah that's so that's so great I mean but there has to have been times when you, when the the paper trail runs dry, what do you do when that happens? Uh, it depends. It just yeah. depends on the story. Um, it might be I just don't have enough and I've got to let it go. Yeah. What's that like when you have to let those those stories go? Um, well, it's funny. I, I'm doing uh, what at the moment uh, Arsenal Pulp Press are publishing a book that's kind of based on my blog, um, but I'm doing sort of updating some of the stories on it that I'd like to include and, and just writing a whole bunch of, of new ones. And uh, there's some that I've realized just aren't going to work and it just kills me to drop them. Yeah. But it's yeah. like, you know, killing your babies, I guess. Yeah. You just have to, <laughs> have to let it go. Yeah. <laughs> I, what was it about um, Inspector Vance that really, I mean, obviously the, the fact that he was the first forensic investigator and in Vancouver and possibly even North America is fascinating in itself. But was there more that kind of really drew you to that character? Yeah, it was just, um, and this is going to sound really bizarre, but sometimes I feel like these dead people are kind of tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you know, could you write about me? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> there, there was one that was Jenny Conroy was murdered in North Vancouver in uh, 1944 and her body was dumped in West Vancouver and her story is the first story in Cold Case Vancouver and when I was researching that story I was reading some of the newspaper clips and it talked about um, the crime scene and how they'd had to bring Detective Walter Mulligan and this Inspector Vance over to the crime scene to, to process it and I presume that it was during the war and they were probably short-staffed or whatever. But I was reading this article and it talked about Inspector Vance was actually a scientist and, and his job was to do the forensics on the crime scene. And I thought, oh my God, we were doing forensics in 1944. How fascinating is that? And um, that sort of led me to the police museum. And it turned out that he'd founded that building in 1932 yeah. and been given his own department and all that sort of stuff. So so that to me was really fascinating and it became like, how could I not do it? And one of the weird things was, you know, I was talking about these boxes that we 
turned up on from Gabriola. When we brought them back, we opened the first box, and the, the thing on top was an envelope, and it was marked Jenny Jenny Eldon Conroy murdered 1944, and it was all the crime scene photos and her forensic samples and everything that was in this envelope of this unsolved murder. Like Vance had been bothered enough by not being able to solve this murder that he'd brought everything home with him when he'd retired and, and to me that was just really freaky yeah <laughs> that over you know 70 years we were both really you know focused on this one murder yeah so how could you not write it <laughs> yeah exactly well, and I mean, when you share that he had seven uh, attempts on his life and, you know, all those things that just, he, it, exactly, how could you not write about him? Yeah. Um, I, it, I Something that I kind of thought of as I was thinking about your books and the transition from, you know, writing uh, the kind of house histories to the true crime is that there was a interesting way that private and public kind of, because homes and crimes, especially against spouses, I'm sure for a certain time were kind of, you know, private domain and everyone turned a blind eye. Did any, did you ever run into people not wanting to talk about what had happened in their families as you were doing research? Uh, yes, with the unsolved yeah. murders, yeah. yeah. Um, actually, I was surprised how many did want to talk about it because, I mean, this, this is the most horrendous thing that can ever happen to you and even if it's been 20, 30, 70 years as in one case um, it doesn't get any better I mean it's this this wrecks whole you know families and, and it's in some cases communities um, so I was actually surprised by how many people you know were willing to, to tell me everything basically and um, it was a way of remembering their relative or friend but also by trying to make it fresh again and hopefully put, you know, new eyes on it. And, you know, the, the, the wish is always that these will become solved. And and we're seeing, I, I guess, lately that some of these really old cases have um, been solved. So, yeah, uh, but I did get pushed back and I wasn't surprised by that. And I dropped a few of them because yeah. the family didn't want it in. And it certainly wasn't my intention to make things worse for them. So, yeah. Yeah. How do you deal with it personally when you're writing about some of these, you know, really horrific events and things that have happened in people's lives? Uh, I've been a reporter for decades, and yeah. I, I guess I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing things. Yeah. You know, when I was working for the Vancouver Sun, we'd have to cover some horrendous thing, and you know, just it, it, this would be something in my my normal life as a mother with kids that I couldn't even look at. It would be so horrible. But as a reporter, you just go out and you do it. You know, kids died. You're covering that. You're talking to the parents or whatever. Um, so I, I think I can do that fairly well without being cold about it. But yeah, I think you have to. Yeah. It's like you know, you hear ambulance people and and things that witness these horrific accidents that that can just sort of. I don't know, I, I, I guess they shut off or they make jokes or they do whatever can possibly get them through that. Yeah, yeah. But I'm sure these the stories linger with you too, you, you know, especially when you're working on a book-long project compared to an article. They probably nag at you in a bit of a different way. Yeah, well, this book with um, Janine, because I got to know Janine so well. I mean, she was pretty well with me every step of the way. And yeah. this was such a strange story because... It was, you know, well, 1965, 
and she was 11 back then and she'd basically lived the rest of her life with never talking about it yeah and never really grieving her mother and this book was a way for her uh, and and she let I mean nothing was off the table she was incredibly brave in this process I mean she talked about everything and um and so that was, you know, I really felt a huge responsibility to do it right for her and her family, yeah. uh, as well as, you know, tell a good story. Yeah. Did you feel a bias towards uh, Rini when you were writing about him? I, I remember you saying that, you know, everyone thought he was such a great guy and so charismatic, but of course he did it. And so did, yeah. does that ever kind of, you think these people are just so rotten? Is it hard to write about them sometimes? Yeah, he was. Uh, I remember when I first talked to Janine, and she was convinced he was guilty, but not until she was in her twenties. So, you know, she went through a long time believing he was innocent, as you would, as a child. You wouldn't want to think your father murdered your mother. Yeah. Uh, but and then found that he wasn't. And when I started looking into it, all the evidence against him was purely circumstantial, and some of it just didn't make a lot of sense to me initially and I, I remember saying to her look I'm not going to demonize him uh, you know like I, I'm just not sure about this I, I need to read everything and the, the police investigation the court transcripts and talk to people and all of that sort of stuff and uh, fairly early on I was convinced that he was guilty and um, so that made it a bit easier to write yeah but I was also because he was such a psychopath thing over the top kind of character um, all the focus has always been on him and you know even my reading today you know sort of that the focus was on him on the Bomax sign and stuff yeah. but I really wanted to try as much as I could to give Esther back some kind of voice and I, I really did that through Janine because there weren't many people that remembered her that could talk about her um, so I was trying to get a sense of her mainly through the you know friends talking about her at, at the time of her death through police statements and uh, court testimony and stuff like that but yeah it was important for me to sort of play him down a bit and, and let her voice come out yeah yeah so when we when you were here the last time you had just started your own podcast how was your podcast <laughs> I did. I did it on Inspector Vance, Blood, Sweat and Fear. And uh, I just did 12 episodes and I, I had an insane amount of fun. It was so yeah. much fun and so different because I had to rewrite everything. So it was for the ear. Yeah. And I've never done that before. And, and that was really challenging. And I, I kind of wish I'd done this years and years ago because I've now started reading things out a lot more and it's better. Yeah. You know, yeah. better writing and stronger and you know, more into scenes and things like that than just, you know, copying someone's dialogue. And, yeah, it was great. Yeah. I had to learn Audacity, the software. And, uh, I mean, you'd laugh if you saw my podcast studio. It's my office. And I got a Blue Rodeo mic and a headset from Amazon. <laughs> and <laughs> I've still got it in my office. It's down now. But it's uh, this really colourful beach umbrella. And um, my husband stapled this comforter over the top yeah. as a baffle so I could move it around the <laughs> office with me. <laughs> and that was my studio, but it actually worked as long as I found that as long as I didn't interview anyone on Tuesday on Garbage Day, yeah. um, it, it was okay. Uh, but I did have a, a really bad interview with the garbage trucks outside for a few minutes. <laughs> 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 I couldn't baffle, but nothing worked on that one. So, but no. it's fun. Yeah, it is fun. Are you, are you thinking you'll do another one for another book? 
I probably wouldn't do one just myself again. No. Like I just wanted to do everything and just figure it out. And it was it blood, sweat, and fear lent itself really well to it because it it was an older book and a, a lot of it wasn't people. Although you know uh, because I wasn't. Um, brave enough to do interviews straight away mm-hmm. I wanted to work up to that so by episode five I, I felt brave enough to to interview people include that on there and and that worked out really well I started interviewing sort of um, police and prosecutors and um, in, in one case it was a domestic violence uh, death and uh, interviewed sort of a domestic violence person now to find out you know what had changed in 70 years and sadly mm-hmm. it turns out not much um, but but that gave it a lot of contrast, and one of them was the two officers that were gunned down in 1947 on the job, yeah. and I was able to interview a former um, a deputy uh, police chief from Vancouver Police Department about how that wouldn't happen now and what they put in place to stop things like that, and it just made it really interesting for me to do that, and it's just really fun and. One of them was a, another case that was a, a woman that was murdered during Second World War years on English Bay. And uh, I got a former prosecutor, criminal defence lawyer, to, to come and talk about this, the strategy that the lawyer had used. So that was fun. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, and my favourite was, um, well, it sounds really awful, but this poor woman was murdered by her husband in um, the 30s in Victoria. But she became this ghost, the April ghost, and, and she's really famous over there. Like people would go looking for her for decades, right? And young yeah. mothers and things where she was murdered on this golf course. And it turned out that um, this university professor, who's very well respected and author and um, lived uh, still in Victoria, had, had encountered the ghost. Yeah. With his girlfriend in, in the 70s when they were only, you know, in their early 20s. And uh, so he was able to come on and just talk about the encounter with the ghost. Yeah. So that made it pretty uh, pretty cool. I was pretty impressed with him that he would do that. <laughs> yeah. I I actually wrote about that ghost because I had talked to someone who said that it came through the windshield of his car. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah, it's really well known, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's really well All Victoria just has so many great ghost stories. Oh, and they yeah. love their ghosts. They just embrace oh, yeah. their ghosts. Yeah. In Vancouver, we're just worried they're going to bring down our house prices, right? Said, no, no ghosts here. We don't have any ghosts. What are you talking about? No ghosts. <laughs> when I was researching my Victoria book, I'd go around to houses to do their gardens or something, and, and they'd say, oh, are you here about the ghost? <laughs> and I'd say, yes, yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd get this great ghost story. So, so that yeah. became kind of fun to do. Thanks so much to Eve for joining me on the podcast. If you have not visited Eve's website, you should, because you can find out more information about her podcast there, as well as her very popular blog, Every Place Has a Home. Thanks to you for listening and supporting Writing the Coast. If you're interested in learning more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit the website bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find the prizes on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. To make sure you're getting all the new episodes of the podcast or to listen to past conversations, subscribe wherever it is that you enjoy listening to podcasts. 
in the new year on upcoming episodes, you will hear more wonderful authors and illustrators, including Daryl J. McLeod, Kathy Page, Harley Rusted, and many more. So until we meet again, I hope you have a happy new year and enjoy some time cozied up with a great book. That's how I hope to spend some of the end of 2019. So happy new year and thank you for spending some of 2019 with me.